Hey, Carolyn, I am super excited about today's guest. I still remember the first time I encountered the fabulous Kathy Castor. It was at a palliative care conference and this blonde haired, just glowing woman walks up to me and hands me a whiteboard and says, will you fill this out for me? And I'm really hoping, and actually I know we're gonna talk more about that whiteboard in our conversation with Kathy moving forward. But I remember thinking, wow, that could takes guts to have a whiteboard at a palliative care conference where everybody's talking about dying and death and the latest research and the best pain medications and how do we support people at the end of life to come up and ask them the question. And so I'm not surprised that Kathy Castor, when she found out a little bit about our little podcast, approached us and said, hey, I want to talk with you. And... I'm excited to learn more about what she thinks about MAID, what she thinks about end of life. Absolutely. I, um, I, it's funny, you've just made me remember the first time that uh, Phoebe the Sloth and I encountered Kathy um, at a, a conference. And for the listeners who don't know Phoebe the Sloth, she's my puppet. She sits on my right hand. I'm right hand dominant. When um, Kathy came up to Phoebe and myself, I wanted Phoebe to fill one out. And Phoebe was quite willing, but of course I'm not a left-handed person, so I ended up making a friend who I sort of coerced to come over and write uh, what Phoebe had to say. And so not only did Kathy kind of engage Phoebe and myself, and again, as you know, lay people and, and wondering you know, if we belonged at this conference, uh, then I got to meet somebody else that I didn't know. Uh, she also, for the record, is somebody who wears a scarf like nobody's business. Kathy has an array of fabulous scarfery, and I, I just appreciate when Kathy walks in a room, you notice. And what I love about that is she walks the talk, and I'm really keen to hear what she has to share with us today. Me too, and I'm pretty confident that we're going to get some good stories and we're going to have some laughs. So let's get the conversation started. So Kathy, we are so glad you joined us this morning. And to get us rocking and rolling, you refer to yourself as an entrepreneur in the health space. What's that mean to you? For me, being an entrepreneur in the health space means identifying gaps and then being able to use my past number of different professions, much to my parents' dismay, can't you just stay in one field, please? Thank you. Um, that led me to create several different gap-filling vehicles, as it were. So that's what I mean. I have not invented anything, you know, tech-wise, uh, unless you include the app that I'm still working on for best endings. But that's what I mean. And um, if it would help, I will give you the first example that got me into this health space. It was in a prenatal class. I, at that point, was an entertainment reporter, so people were recognizing me. And two things happened. The instructor said, Kathy, uh, you're in production. Can you possibly produce some videos that alert the expectant parents to the baby that they're going to have so they don't just concentrate on the 24 or 48 hours of horror? <laughs> And think about the 15 years of horror <laughs> after the kid is born. Um, and uh, husband and I looked at one another and we thought, not only can we do this with our production skills, 
But we can approach this as every man, not a healthcare professional, as an expectant parent who knows really nothing about not just birth, but bringing up the kid. I was particularly motivated to do this because there were so many words in that prenatal class that I didn't understand. And, you know, here I am, educated, got my career in hand, white privilege central. And I'm thinking, if I don't understand some of these words that these healthcare professionals are throwing out, I bet I'm not alone. So I am interested, how did you go from the beginning of life to the end of life? Well, the reason um, follows my life. So what we did with the videos that we produced, we produced a bunch of standalone videos on bathing and breastfeeding and exhaustion called I'm So Tired. And we turned them into a television network that went into hospitals all across North America, top teaching hospitals all across North America. And it was called the Parent Channel. And at a certain point, the other unit's wards in the hospital were calling us and saying, can you do the same thing for general med surge internal medicine? So we started a second television network called Health TV that addressed the commonalities. We couldn't really do um, disease by disease for a number of reasons, including funding. So we had to find the commonalities amongst all of these patients who had whatever from heart disease and cancer to surgery. And it turns out there were commonalities, pain management, depression, recovery, caregivers, so we produced a second channel that also went into teaching hospitals across North America. And anyhow, by that time, my kids were teenagers. I did not want to do anything with teenagers. You know, so I'd gone from early life, skipped the teenage part altogether, and headed into the uh, middle age diseases. And at that point in time, Twitter started. And at the same time as sort of Twitter entered the scene, our business model for the hospital-based television networks was going up in smoke. The internet was there and televisions in the hospitals were breaking down. So I migrated our video content to the internet and started a website called Ability for Life, which was for adult children caring for aging parents. Well, then everyone leapt on that bandwagon, as well they should have. And the next niche that opened was dying in death. So there was Twitter. I stumbled onto a group of hospice and palliative healthcare professionals who had a weekly chat called Hospice and Palliative Medicine, HPM. And there I found a spectrum of healthcare professionals from doctors, nurses, ethicists, chaplains, PTs, OTs, anyone who dealt with us at the end of life or in that journey. So I'm on this HPM chat. They're all saying, oh, if people only talked about dying and death more, there'd be so much grief that could be avoided. And I chime in disrupting the tweet chat saying, I'm a regular person. I'm not a healthcare professional. I'd love to talk more about this. I don't know where to start. 
And in fact, the only real things I know about dying and death are CPR, which I've only seen on TV. And I worked in TV, so I knew that couldn't actually reflect reality. And DNR, which I was interpreting as do not treat, as many people do. Well, these amazing folks handed me curated research, gray literature, podcasts, forums, and I slowly began to develop my questions around things that really puzzled me. So, you know, palliative care at that point was still interpreted as um, nothing more that can be done. You're just going to be dying. I want to say a couple of things because I'm, I have a gazillion things I want to touch on. But what I loved in particular about what you just shared, Kathy, was that we've been taught that hospice is not a place, it's an approach. And so the way you describe moving into these cyberspaces and sharing those spaces with healthcare professionals and so forth, it really speaks to that idea that it takes an interdisciplinary or a multidisciplinary approach to the way we deliver hospice care and palliative care. I want to go back to, to that term you use, the everyman term, because, and I, I would also add the every sloth, because Phoebe the sloth and I, of course, have encountered you at conferences and been very, very pleased to share your signature statement that you ask people to consider when we meet at conferences. I want to fill in the blank until I die. And of course, I'm going to speak for Phoebe because she's not up yet. It's still quite early. Um, she wants to eat mango until she dies and meet all the children that she can. Those are her two goals. And of course, mine, I was very concerned at one point about my chin hairs. So I shared that with you, that, you know, I want somebody to be there to pluck those very thick hairs until I die. What prompted you to ask that question of yourself and then also of the other every people, or as, as Kathy and I like to call, uh, the other squishy humans that you come into contact with. What prompted you to reach out and say, I, I want you to think about this? As I was turning my Twitter-based knowledge into blogs on bestendings.com, I felt there was some uh, approach that I was missing. So there I was tackling topics like um, feeding tubes. And I did a TED talk and included my then thought about feeding tubes, which was really, for me, anyhow, evaluating how much I liked eating. I mean, not just eating. The food is great. But the stuff that goes with eating, the crunching and the cleaning out of the teeth and the going down of the throat and the tongue and, you know, all the stuff that goes with eating, which I love. I love every single bits of food on my face part of eating. And I thought, that's what I would miss. That is what, these are the kinds of quality yeah. of life, nurturing, comfort thing that should be considered, could be considered, ought to be considered with, in my opinion, any medical procedure decision. Do not just talk about the intervention, the procedure. Encourage you to think about how that is going to affect your life after that. So the healthcare professionals can all talk about non-invasive and minor and day surgery. But 
as someone said, the definition of minor surgery is something that happens to someone else. Because there is no, for us, there is no minor surgery. So it may be that a feeding tube is a nice fix, an essential fix in some cases, but take into account, um, really, in my opinion, one of the palliative care approaches. You know, take a look at all of us and see what our social and spiritual existential needs. So as I'm going through these questions, which also include a breathing machine, like the, the, the heroic measure stuff, they began to get case sort of case studies of other decisions, repeated urinary tract infection, repeated um, chest infections, going to the hospital and having to recover from being in the hospital. These are things you know, but that we don't necessarily uh, know. Maybe some of us don't want to know, but then you're faced with the as one doctor said, a word that I thought, I'm never going to use that, but I'm going to use it here. Sequelae. That's a terrible word. I'm never going to use it again. So, Kathy, you've done a lot of thinking and sharing space with many people at the end of life. You know, in true transparency, we've crossed paths at numerous palliative care conferences and working with people who want more than anything to help others and support others in their best endings. And so I'm interested from your vantage point, from the Twitter sphere, from your participation within healthcare, how do you see medical assistance in dying having changed the landscape of care at the end of life for Canadians? Well, in order to answer how I have seen uh, made change the landscape, I have to share that I volunteered to be a witness for the paperwork required to kick off a made request. And I did that specifically to see how made has changed the landscape in end-of-life care. I mean, there's another side to this, and that is doctors and other healthcare professionals are a whole other aspect of changing the landscape. But so I thought, you know, I want to see if anyone feels like they've been coerced. I want to see what their state of mind is. I want to see the folks in the room, how they react to all of this. And it has been a positive, revelationary experience in that I go into these rooms, whether they're hospital, home, nursing home, a bit differently than the other witnesses that I've gone with. I go in beaming. Hi, I feel privileged to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to meet you at this point in time. I'm so happy I can help with anything I can do. I'm telling you, nobody else goes in like that. And at first, <laughs> I, um, I felt maybe I'm, you know, not doing this properly. You shouldn't be so happy. Going into a room where someone wants to die. But I've gotten letters. People have written me and said, thank you for this experience. And so that is how I continue to approach things. And as a result, I have certainly confirmed that no one's being coerced, that there's a great, huge peace in that room. 
I don't have to worry about this. I'm being taken care of. Having said that, there have been two people that I've met who've said with their eyes closed and almost shuddering in pain, can this happen this afternoon? I'm in so much pain. Every minute is like a year. So I've certainly had that too, but I feel like I'm granted a window into 15 minutes, half an hour of these folks' time when they are in a way at their most both vulnerable and peaceful. And the people that I've met, I will hold in my heart, even though I've done a whole bunch of them. But for instance, one of the rooms that I went into, I noticed that the woman who'd requested Nate, who was in the uh, bed, was made up fabulously. With the boards that I do, I want to blank until I die. There are many women who have said, I want to be fully made up. Your, you know, your chin hairs thing was not unusual, except it was unusual, right? But I want to be fully made up. I want to have my best clothes on, etc. In another house, I took a notice of a repeated architectural design and asked the, the guy about it. He said, I've got this design all throughout my house. Do you want to see? So he went up the stairs. He had a circling staircase. He went all the way up to the top floor and took a look at every place that he had incorporated this design, got downstairs, and his wife said to me, thank you. That made a big difference. He really loved showing that off. That was really wonderful. So those are the kind of, I think, quite unique experiences that I have as a maid witness. So lovely. Um, it's so lovely to hear that I am not alone in my aesthetic. So I want to ask a question that I love to ask at conferences, and I would love to ask of you right now. I want to preface it by saying you are one of the most upbeat, positive human, squishy humans I have ever encountered. And it's a real privilege to hang with you. But here's a question I want to ask you now. When you go into spaces as a witness and bear witness and see the humanness of these choices, these decisions behind made, how do you take care of you? I find that seeing these folks gives me energy. And I know it sounds crazy going in to see dying people and coming out feeling recharged, positive. Spirit has been filled up with what I have encountered. And what I have encountered is not sorrow. It's not anticipatory grief. I mean, I'm sure there is that. But these are... 99% of the time, situations where everybody, because often there's more than one person there, has accepted what is going to happen, has made peace with it themselves, and for the most part, anyhow. But um, because of the gift of made, these folks are not like I have seen others writhing in the hospital, writhing in the right. They've been given an out. And that gives me an in for going, okay, this is the right thing to do. This is the, this is the humane thing. This isn't as, you know, as, as many in the world talk about um, uh, murder on demand. It's not. Right. 
And so, Kathy, you're describing MAID in a way that I know in our research we have heard uh, people who've accompanied someone who used MAID at the end of their life as being a gift, as being a positive opportunity for people to maintain autonomy and control at the end of life. And in the work that Carrie Lynn and I do, and I'm sure in the spaces where you have been as well, you know that not everybody sees MAID that way. And in fact, right now in Canada, it's a bit of a contentious issue in many different pockets. And so have you encountered people who don't share your viewpoints? And what do you do about that? Um, I'm going to answer your second question first. I shut the F up when I encounter those who do not view it as a gift, one of whom is my sister. My sister, who is smart and funny and is a writer and has written books and does all kinds of stuff, she has ALS, which immediately meets the criteria. I said to her once, if I were in your position, I'd be putting in the request right now. I would not want to be facing the future of ALS. And she went, nope, not talking about any of that. A couple of times it has come up and her perception of it is so, in my opinion, skewed that I really have to shut up. She said, I don't want to make a spectacle of my death. That's the last word I would think of using. I think of a celebration, a comfort, a coming together, an opportunity to see people, etc. And then she said, um, you know, maybe I would like to do this on my own. I don't want to involve my children. If I were going to do this, and she doesn't say that anymore, I, I, I don't want my children. I'm, she, she has an adult son with, with some grandchildren. And again, I had to keep my mouth shut thinking, maybe they would like to be around. Maybe you should talk to them about this and not make decisions on their behalf. But she is my older sister. And the patterns are such that if I were to say anything like that, even with her limited abilities, she would shoot me totally, utterly down. So I've taken to going, hmm, ah, huh, okay. Like I have a whole range of sounds to answer people when I can't figure out what to say. I've added another one, sure, huh. Yeah, okay, sure. In the counseling world, we call those minimal encouragers. <laughs> those little filler moments. And one of the things that I think is really important that you've highlighted here is that we don't all have to agree about medical assistance in dying to provide opportunity for people to have the kind of death that they would want. And I also hear that it sounds like your sister's viewpoints around MAID, like many people, or around end of life have changed potentially as her disease changes, as her ALS progresses, as she gets older, whatever the case might be. And for me, one of the things that I appreciate about MAID in Canada is the opportunity for people to say, press pause on it, or to be asked at that moment, is this what you want? Do you want to die today, here, now? As you've probably given witness to numerous times as having been a witness for me. And so 
I see that as being an opportunity for people to really give deep consideration for it. And I think by holding space, as it sounds like you are for your sister, that provides opportunity for that consideration to happen. And I know people right now across Canada are having difficult conversations as it pertains to MAID. Carrie Lynn and I just recently did an interview with a woman who is a quadriplegic and thinking about her space within the disability community and thoughts about MAID. And I know, Kathy, I've seen that in places you've said something to the effect of suicide is an act of desperation, but MAID is an act of contemplation with benefits. What does that mean to you? When MAID was not yet made legal, there was a fellow on Facebook, uh, Andrew Mayer Clayton, and he connected with me, even though we didn't know one another. And so I followed, as did whomever else was on Facebook with him, his journey to suicide because MAID wasn't available. And hearing him, um, my heart broke because I thought you could have had love at the end. You could have been surrounded by the people who on the Facebook page were saying, I wish we could be with you. I wish we could help you. If MAID had been legal then, you would have had the very comforts and pleasures that I asked people about in this board. And I'm going to answer the first part of your question in a moment, but I realized I hadn't fully answered Carrie Lynn's question about how I came to this question about what do you want in your life? So as I'm going through what not to do, what not to do, what to consider, the sequelae, the this and the that, I'm thinking, these are unknowns. Who knows? It may be that I actually say, forget about the jamoka almond fudge and the nuts and the chewing. Give me a feeding tube because I need to XXX. True. Why are we being asked about these decisions about what not to do when we do not even have a full understanding of what that means and we likely won't until it's right in front of us? So I decided to flip the switch turn it on its head and say, well, what about things you do know? What about things you found in your life that bring you comfort? Now, this came about really as an introspective journey that required me at the end of a day when I said, you know what, that was a really good day, as we all do, right? We all have days when we say, oh, that was a great day. To go back and pay attention to what factors made up that good day and see if I can't include as many factors as possible in each of my days, which really leads to a, quite a positive, upbeat attitude that um, encourages laughter and encourages finding the funny, the silly, the, the whatever. So that is when I thought, I'm just going to try this. I'm going to bring this. And the first conference that I brought it to, I was sitting beside the late and wonderful Josh Shad. I was a little worried. I'm a lay person amongst all these healthcare professionals. And I turned to him very quietly and said, I got this board. Well, man, he took this up. And that gave me the confidence to ask uh, the next person who happened to be Alex Haddad. Well, not only was he right into it, 
but he got into every single shot that he possibly could when people were filling out their boards. So what started as an experiment based on me saying, what about the knowns? Turned into 200 boards, CMAT analysis, published in a peer journal, which is the closest I'm going to get to being a healthcare professional for my late parents' purposes, and made me think, this is so much more uplifting. Even though I'm still extremely curious, always am, about the tool that's out there now that you may know about called best case, worst case tool, right? That walks you through the possibilities for best case, worst case, and likely case. And I thought, that's what we need. If we're going to be looking at what not to do, you know, you sort of need that full spectrum of understanding. But if you're going to talk about what you do want, then I have seen people leave the room in their minds to a special place where they feel good and then come back and write something down. You can imagine this turns a conversation that's about dying, what do I want till I die, into blue sky and positivity and all of that great stuff that also helps those around us give them purpose in how to help us. So. I held this um, a sort of a death cafe in my living room a couple of years ago with a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Canadian Catholic, a Mexican Catholic, they're quite different, and an atheist. And the Buddhist woman said, when my mother-in-law was dying, she needed her Gita, her Bhagavad Gita, which is her Bible. Once she had that on her chest, she calmed right down. And someone else said, my mom has restless legs. She has asked me to make sure I massage her legs. So I've got something to do. I can be helpful. I can be purposeful. With, at a time when there's so little that we people around our loved one, we often don't know what to do. So I thought, tell them that I want dogs in my life right up until the end. I love it. I love all of it. And I love getting to remember Josh in the memory that you've just shared as well. Thank you. I think what I'd like to ask you now, because I get a real sense, and I too am a non-healthcare professional who inhabits these spaces of healthcare professionals. And when I first arrived, I can remember being at a conference years ago and apologizing for my presence in these spaces and saying, I know I'm not supposed to be here. And, and I remember somebody very emphatically saying, we're all supposed to be here, you know? So as you quite rightly said, sit the hell down and shut the F up and let's get on with this. But here's a question that I'm really curious about you and I think about me. What are you able to ascertain as a layperson, squishy human, as am I, in these spaces? I get the sense that you and your fabulous jacket and your fabulous persona, that you can infiltrate these spaces in a way that healthcare professionals aren't necessarily able. Do you have any reflections on that? Thank you. I so appreciate you phrasing it that way because... In fact, I have found that there is language. You know, when I am asked, as I often am, to be a patient partner in various initiatives, I often am not as sick with something as the other patients in there. I mean, I have my things and they're all managed, but you know, there are people who have serious illnesses. And I come in and say, I'm about the language 
I'm about the assumptions, the gap, the imposition of language. And I work across as a patient partner, three silos. I have broken down three silos, end of life, as we know, health literacy and shared decision-making. And I think those three things come together, particularly in the end of life journey. Shared decision-making, in my opinion, should be not discounted when you have people around you saying, do, don't, do, don't, please don't, please do, whatever it happens to be. So shared decision-making is not just doctor-patient, it is patient-community healthcare professionals. So the words that I drill down on are simple words that meet health literacy requirements. Hope. Hope is such a, a huge, often misinterpreted on both ends. So I worked with a wonderful healthcare professional whose husband died when she met another guy at church and they fell madly in love, and then he got diagnosed with a terminal illness, and they decided they were going to use marbles for every day that they had together. They were going to fill a thing with brightly colored marbles. That was their hope, that they could put another marble in the jar. It wasn't a hope for a miracle. It wasn't a hope for pain management. It wasn't hope for anything other than that teeny, tiny thing, and they blossomed. He died three weeks later, but boy, they had as full of three weeks as they possibly could because they boiled down their hopes to something feasible. Goal is another one. I hate that word goal. I really do. I'm sorry because I know it's used all over the place, but it's too abstract for me. It needs to be just like the, the question of what's important. It's not that it's, they're bad questions. It just does not get to what I think is the essence of what you want to get to. What, if, what does that person enjoy? Not what's important to you. That's good too. But, you know, what's important to me is that my almonds are chocolate covered. You know, this is important kind of thing. But when it comes to dying, I'm thinking, make sure the chocolates are chopped up uh, so that I don't risk choking kind of thing. So I don't like that question at all. Um, and then there are words like treat, which is what I give every dog that I see. I give that dog a treat. Um, and those are the kinds of things that you wonderful healthcare professionals, and in fact, lay people, not just me, don't pay attention to in a way to say when a doctor or whomever says, so like, um, I know you're hoping for a miracle. Well, actually, I'm not hoping for a miracle. Why don't you ask what I'm actually hoping for? Maybe it's just a latte with a friend. I love those language pieces. And I think that is so important. And as you were speaking and talking about the importance of language, and I know I've asked as a social worker, uh, working clinically to people at the end of life, what's important to you or something like that. So I, that would be really hopeful and helpful moving forward. And when I think about some of the challenges that Canadians are facing at the end of life and as a, can I say, embedded layperson into healthcare <laughs> and thinking about how your work has been not only uh, in a palliative care space, but also in a maid space, and how 
I would say, unfortunately, in Canada, palliative care has worked hard to not overlap with MAID and has been really clear. And so what, what are your thoughts about that real clear boundary between a palliative approach to care and MAID? And do you think that that serves Canadians well? No. <laughs> I despair that the wonderful, well-meaning, person-centered, palliative care folks do not see this as another option to help with suffering. Uh, it's just a big, fat mystery to me. And because I value the palliative care approach so much, and in fact, really think it should be the standard of care. So this blinkered approach, in my opinion, that pa some palliative care physicians have, I'm hoping evolves. And I think in this time when we're talking about um, made requests that come from, allegedly come from a, a place of poverty, for example, which, in my opinion, is a completely different issue that MAID should not be saddled with solving. This is a societal issue. I, I find it extremely uncomfortable um, when I'm with a palliative, anyone in the palliative team who kind of, you know, does body language. No, I'm not going to murder people. And it's another case where I have to shut up. There's no question about it because um, I'm not going to convince anyone, right? I, I mean, I'll just answer my own questions here. I'm not going to convince anyone of things as serious as that. But it saddens me and angers me that that has to be a component along with all the other things that people make up, look up about May access to MAID. So we've been able to hear about some incredible things that you have done to date. I'm excited to know what's next for Kathy Kastner. Can you share a little bit about where you are in this present moment and, and where you might go in the near future? My next project, having written um, two books already, one called Death Kills, and uh, the other one um, does not have to do with the personal death, but we did hire a murderer at one point in our business, and uh, I wrote about that. But the next book is going to be based on the evidence behind the theme analysis of the whiteboards. So it's going to be called uh, The Whiteboard Experiment. And every single, not just the themes, but the um, specifics, like learning. In fact, the theme that came out the top of these 2,200 or so whiteboards, um, I would have thought... It would be having family around, having a good death, having a, I just all kinds of things that I imagine. Well, no, it turns out feeling purposeful, feeling purposeful slash productive is what people want right until the end. It comes out in different forms. It's like painting, writing, exploring, learning, all of those kind of things. And this makes sense to me. And I don't doubt to the two of you too, because you are both purposeful people. I have researched um, each one of these themes and more. So that will, be, uh, that will be the next book that I will do uh, likely next year. And the other thing is I have put all these uh, whiteboards up on an Instagram along with 
good death stories. These are stories of what people felt were good death. Because I think often, what does that, what does that mean? What does that mean? Presumably, the things that come top of mind are you know, certainly no suffering. But suffering isn't, as you know, just physical. It can be existential. It can be loneliness. It can be a whole bunch of different things. So I intend to put those stories together, too. And I can't wait to see that collection. And because you talked about sunshine and earlier you talked about hope, what do you hope for or what would be the sunshine moving forward with Made in Canada? Certainly mental health. Certainly mental health. I think if you haven't been there, you cannot, in my opinion, uh, judge or make decisions because as those who've experienced depression, and I'm one of them, you just cannot imagine um, it's diff so different from a physical ailment. So that is what I'm hoping that opens up for that um, and certainly advance directives for um, dementia, all kinds of dementia. And that the palliative care doctors come around. Those are sort of my three hopes. <laughs> for the future. And those are big ones, but I think we are seeing ripples of all of that happening. And Carolyn and I talk a lot about Canadians want true choice at the end of life. They want to be able to have the best endings um, that they can. They also want to have some say, and I really appreciated your strongest theme coming out from the whiteboard experiment, purpose. Purpose and meaning. And I think regardless if a death that somebody has uses made or accesses a palliative approach to care, ideally it can have both. We know this, but that's what people want in terms of being able to live well until they die. And so thank you so very much, Kathy, for all the work that you do. I, I like this idea of an embedded layperson. I think we could use that in so many facets of society quite successfully to learn more and deeper about the work that we do and how it impacts others. But thank you for all the work that you have done within the end of life space and that you continue to do. And thanks for reaching out and asking to be part of our podcast. I am totally tickled. I've always appreciated that the two of you have appreciated my uh, zany approach to this. Um, you know who doesn't like me talking about this? my children. I mean, I say it's, I quote your book. I quote your book. It, that's not going to kill you children to talk about this. Uh, I agree. And my kids sometimes get tired of hearing about death as well. I get it. Um, but, you know, I think it helps us to live well, too, when we pay attention to the important part at the end. So just remember, if you are with me at the end of life, tequila. Tequila? Absolutely. And some chocolate almonds. And I will be sure to enter the room beaming. In a fabulous jacket. In a fabulous jacket. I, I, I can't wait to read about what people have shared and where they come from. And I think this kind of qualitative lens that you look through is, is so vital. As Kathy says, we all, we all contribute something. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for your contribution today. And I really look forward to watching what Kathy does next. Thank you. Thank you. And likewise. Well, thank you. Thanks. Okay. Bye. Bye. I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I I'm not surprised we laughed a lot. 
this idea of the embedded layperson, like you would think that would be a natural fit in healthcare. But I think Kathy Kastner and the work that she does really offers a different way of seeing things uh, in a way that we don't necessarily capture enough of. Yeah, I think that's so true. And I, I think, as I shared, what I really appreciated was that the trepidation that I too felt moving into spaces where I thought there were sentinels and sentinels clearly that I was putting into place myself, but also the understanding that I felt in the world of ticking boxes, you know, who do you represent at this conference? And I remember thinking, I don't know where I fit in this kind of tick one box of this is you. So I really appreciate that Kathy kind of, um, I would argue, and language matters, as she shared with us. You know, I'll use the term, she really pioneered that kind of, I'm here, I have stuff to contribute, I have stuff to learn, so let's make space for everybody. I think the second thing I really loved about our conversation was the, again, to go back, you know how much I love language and using the term hope in the way that she did and talking about how the imposition of language when it isn't construed in, in the same way by two people, by five people, by a hundred people. And it really reminded me of Atul Gawande's quote about hope not being a plan but hope being something that is coincidal with what's happening to us. So that lovely little anecdote of putting the marbles in a jar, um, asking people to define what they mean by the term hope. And then we understand really where people are. I agree. And I would also say that I'm pretty aligned with the hopes that she has around medical assistance in dying and what happens next. And so it was great to hear that from her perspective and knowing that she is out there going into different spaces, may it be beaming into the room with somebody who is facing the end of their life and working to make sure that all of us live well until we die. So I look forward to our next conversation. Thanks to people for listening. And just in case you didn't hear it, Kathy Kassler reached out to us and said, hey, I want to speak with you. So if you know somebody who you think we should be speaking with, or maybe you're that person yourself, please drop us a line at disruptingdeath.ca and uh, we would love to connect with you. So leave us any sort of feedback, be it a rating on wherever you're getting your podcasts or on our Facebook or Instagram pages. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, let's keep those conversations going. And thanks so very much for listening.
and day.